From crisis to compromise, Israeli democracy may soon get stronger than ever as threats surge from Iran, the West Bank, Gaza, and Lebanon. We'll talk to former member of Knesset and leading thinker on Zionism and Israel, Dr. Einat Wolf, to help us make sense of all the twists and turns. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, wow! I uh, the the events that have unfolded. I've you know I've thought about writing an op-ed once every six hours for about a month. <laughs> I know, right? It's it's like and it, and it became obvious that anybody writing these op-eds is just that's that's a fool's errand. Well, you, well, you remember the the phrase from the government OBE? Did you guys use yeah, that? Yeah, OBE. Yeah, it's a military o- phrase. OBE. Yeah, o- overcome by events. I feel Correct. like every op-ed written is OBE by the time it's published. If you weren't and, uh, addicted to social media before, you are now. Yeah. I mean, there's so much great content and I got to tell you, you know, for me, the thing that has been so shocking is people, and I'm not going to name names, but friends of mine who worked in the the last Netanyahu government who are out and the protests, some of them protest leaders. Uh, and that's for me when I think this, this thing sort of jumped the shark. Um, and, and the prime minister, I think is finally, wrapping his head around that but but you know what do i know well i i'll just make a few comments i know there's a lot of heated passions and emotions on all sides here and i think the number one goal here is for people to sit down and and have cool heads and and try to figure out a path forward that makes sense um and and i don't like meddling i've never liked meddling i i get upset when i see the biden administration making statements i feel like it's meddling um even if even if some people are going to argue it's well-intentioned i i don't see it that way i think others don't take it that way uh but Listen, Yoav Gallant, uh, former former general of the IDF, uh, I guess former defense minister. We'll see. Yep. No, uh, I mean he he was he was right. publicly fired, right? Like, uh, whether I, he I, actually I say, gets fired, I, I will say um, whether it's for the moment or the future, a national hero at the moment, and uh, really an incredible person. Um, great security mind, by the way. Uh, a loss uh, for the state if he's not defense minister as they face down the growing threat from Iran. Uh, and, and other Iranian-backed threats, uh, but uh, just want to recognize him, as his mother did, uh, for those who watched social media uh, and saw the call of his mother to check in on her son uh, after the firing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, but also, um, I would say, what's so interesting to me, maybe we'll talk to um, Dr. Wilf about a little bit as we explore this topic. I've always believed Israeli democracy is sort of out of control compared to ours, right? Like it's it's like too much democracy if that was even a thing, right? Like obviously I don't believe in too much democracy, but like if you could believe in such a thing, it would be in Israel, right? It's like totally out of control. Uh, the Knesset is is a total food fight every single session. Everybody jokes about just like the visceral politics in Israel. And, you know, we say, oh, politics ain't beanbag in certain places in the country. Like that's on steroids. Always has been in Israel. Always has been. The history is replete with these kind of incidents of just major upheaval and protest movements and all that kind of stuff. And you just felt like, you know, even when they go to what feels like a brink, there's just, you know, something in the kishkis on the left and the right regardless of your ideological view on the substance being debated, that it's just like uncomfortable. There's just, there's just something too far that Israelis just don't want. They do want camaraderie. They're still, you know, brothers and sisters in arms. 
Um, there's a unifying, you know, feeling of Zionism and, and the IDF and the idea of Israel and a Jewish state. And, you know, as right as you think you are on judicial reform, as wrong as you think they are, there's this point. I don't know, Jerry, you see this video of this protester who showed up, I think it was B'nai Barak or something, um, who thought he was coming to be obnoxious and a protester in front of like a big Haredi area, big religious area. And instead of pelting him or hurling insults at him, they started playing um, Shalom Aleichem, like from Friday night on a loudspeaker. And he, and he starts crying and they bring him chullant and he breaks down and they start hugging. And it was just raw Israel, this, this old secular man and these Haredis just loving each other at a horrible moment of, of politics. Right. That's Israel. Right. I, I think you're seeing that in the protests, right? The protests are, are different, I think, than you would see them in some other places. Uh, um, they are positive and they are, you know... Um, cross-cutting across society, which I also think is is really fascinating. Yeah, and and to detractors of Israel out there who thought this was your moment, you know, like oh well, we got them now. Now we're you know we've said that this is just a bunch of cruel dictator murderers, Jews, Zionists. Now we're going to show the world. Yeah, sorry. You don't get that moment. You don't do that. All right, let's get to our guest. Yes. Dr. A. Not Wilf is a leading thinker on Israel, Zionism, foreign policy, and education. She was a member of the Israeli Knesset from 2010 to 2013, where she served as chair of the Education Committee and member of the Influential Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. Born and raised in Israel, Dr. Wilf served as an intelligence officer in the IDF, foreign policy advisor to Vice Prime Minister Shimon Peres, and a strategic consultant with McKinsey. Author of seven books, most recent, We Should All Be Zionists, published just last year. Dr. A. Not Wilf, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Well, we know, uh, obviously, a lot of things going on in Israel. That That's the understatement uh, of, of our podcast in two years, probably. Uh, and we also are following closely the stories, the battle lines of the reform debate, uh, what's happening hour by hour now uh, with the hopefully compromise negotiations, etc. I guess maybe zoom out a little bit um, as an expert, a watcher, an observer, a thinker on Zionism and the state of Zionism, if you were giving sort of a state of Zionism address, you know, the state of the union of Zionism, what is the assessment today? What is happening within Zionism today in in your view? So one of the most interesting things that for me happened is uh, a few months ago, I published uh, a collection of essays book titled, We Should All Be Zionists. And it was the culmination of four years of writing essays that spoke about the importance of Zionism to Jews abroad, the importance of Zionism to the Arab world as a path to peace. But I had not imagined that the title of the book, We Should All Be Zionists, would actually become relevant inwardly. Uh, And I think this is much of what's happening now. It's a kind of revival of secular Zionism that for so many years, even decades, was almost uh, taken for granted, uh, viewed as something that is no longer relevant. Uh, Zionism became associated with the more religious, even extreme right-wing elements of Israeli politics and society. And 
you could hear them even say things like that the descendants, the heirs of the secular Zionism that basically built the state, uh, were a bunch of left-wing globalists, uh, rootless cosmopolitans, so to say, who have no real connection to the land. Um, if anything doesn't go their way, they're going to leave at the first opportunity. They all hold second passports. So you have this kind of demonization, this notion that this is a complete irrelevant group on its way to just being, you know, a dying minority. Even when the first um, protests happened, uh, much of the commentary from the right was like, this is a bunch of aging people. The median age of the protests is 75. Uh, you know, they're just uh, lamenting a country that is no longer theirs. And what I think has happened is that all of us, all of that was just proven to be absolutely and completely wrong. And in many ways, this is the most hopeful thing that I take uh, from what's been happening. So let me, to follow up on that, Dr. Wolf, you know, I read an article, I think yesterday or the day before, that said that this is the best week that Israeli democracy has had in a really long time. Um, and as an optimist about the state of Israel, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, but I'm sure that is not a universally held uh, belief and view. Uh, what do you make of that statement that, that that what's gone on in the last week or two in Israel is is the best thing that's happened to Israeli democracy in quite a while? So I'll separate uh, democracy and uh, the secular Zionism. And I think uh, Daniel Gordis wrote it in his um, indeed, regular. Indeed. Yes. Um, so in general, my whole view of Israeli democracy, which is why not for a single moment was I worried that Israeli democracy is in danger, is that like everything good that is in our country it's the result of no choice. So the wars that we won were the wars where we had no choice. Our technology, our water technology, all of that is the result of not having a choice. Uh, and our democracy is a democracy of not having a choice. My argument is that almost no one in Israel is a Democrat uh, in the sense of their values. I think we have very few people, if at all, who are truly neutral Democrats in the sense of like, if this government is, is in power, I'm fine. If this government is in power, I'm fine. Who are kind of just neutral about it. My argument is that very few of the participants in Israeli democracy are Democrats, but that demo the democracy we have is the outcome of no side being able to impose their vision and therefore, all sides essentially living in a democracy of no choice as the mechanism by which to settle our bitter and fierce disagreements. Now, that's very Zionist and very Jewish. This is why, for example, I never accepted the comparisons to Poland and Hungary. It's certainly not Turkey. These are countries that literally had five minutes of democracy at best. Israel is one of the world's oldest democracies, which to some people sounds weird, but it's true. 
Um, the Zionist Congress is one of the world's oldest democratic organizations. I mean, the aristocratic Herzl established the Zionist Congress, and the Jews that he brought on board would not give him the time of day. So, and we go back, of course, to the Jewish uh, structures and to the Jewish civilization, which from Abraham through the Talmud is a civilization of argumentation. So I never doubted that Israeli democracy is strong because it's based on the Jewish civilization of argumentation, the Zionist history of argumentation, the Israeli history, and because it's a parliamentary democracy and parliamentary democracies generally deal better with challenges. Um, so I was never concerned about that. So uh, I don't think um, this was a week for Israeli democracy. I think this was a great week for secular Zionism because I think our, if to say our camp or our people who are both right, left and center, and I say secular Zionism, but maybe I should say classic Zionism because there were always religious groups within secular Zionism that were able to combine uh, mitzvot with work, with uh, labor. So I think it was a great week for classical Zionism. The understanding that we're not doomed to be a minority headed to the dustbin of Israeli history. We're a force to be reckoned with. And we're not a bunch of ruthless cosmopolitans. We actually deeply, deeply care for our country. In many ways, we are the most rooted of the group, if anything, because our brand of Zionism cannot travel well. We can only be as we are in Israel. And you can see that when Israelis go abroad, they find it very difficult to maintain the Israeliness when they're abroad. Um, Haredi Jews can live as they live in Bnei Brak or in Antwerpen. Uh, they are much more mobile. Uh, we can only be who we are here. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's been a remarkable week for classic Zionism. For Israeli democracy, I was never worried. As we sort of um, look over the horizon now, obviously there's a, I guess you would call it a constitutional convention within a small room of sorts uh, on the horizon. There, there's this dynamism in play of Israeli democracy, of Israeli Zionism you just talked about. Uh, I, I want to contrast that because you've done a lot of work on this to the anti-Zionist narrative that seems very static on the Palestinian side. You've sort of said anti-Zionism continues to form the core of Palestinian identity. I wonder if you can talk about what that means exactly and how that contrast is playing out today. Obviously, talk of a third intifada of violence, really what a contrast in front of what we just talked about in this uh, dynamic situation of Israeli democracy uh, and, and Zionism. I think the contrast really goes to the core of what it means to be a Zionist and what it means to be an anti-Zionist. Zionism is essentially a constructive idea. It's an idea about imagining a future and then building that future. And it's all about construction. It's all about building. And, and this is why Zionism has been a remarkably powerful idea. 
And I would argue in many ways, the only idea that ultimately triumphed as a successful way to be a Jew in the modern era. Uh, of all the ideas that emerged beginning in the 19th century and throughout the 20th century, from communism to Bundism, to uh, European assimilation and emancipation, Zionism that was the dark horse, um, you know, when the Zionist Congress is established, maybe 1% of Jews in the world are Zionists, uh, really triumphed as the only relevant idea that was left standing. Anti-Zionism is a destructive idea by its very definition. It's an idea that sees something vibrant, something that was built, and believes that it shouldn't exist, that it must be destroyed. Which is why, for example, I've seen a lot of commentators recently looking at all these protests and demonstrations in Israel and saying, if Palestinians had done that, they would not have been contained. I mean, we need to remember, these were massive protests. No one, was, no one died. I mean, there was no violence as such at the margins. But, but it's actually quite remarkable that an entire country can like essentially just explode uh, without violence. So you had some commentators saying, you know, if Palestinians had gone on these demonstrations, you know, it would have been met with Israeli guns and it would not have been contained. And it's part of a bigger argument made sometimes on behalf of, uh, you know, Palestinian apologists that, uh, you know, you're not giving Palestinians any room to protest, you know, because when it's terrorism, then terrorism is wrong. When it's boycotts, then boycotts is wrong. Like, you know, there's no way that Palestinians can express themselves. And my argument is always the problem was never with the Palestinian means. The problem was always and remains with the Palestinian goal. Uh, as long as the Palestinian goal remains the same that it has always been, and to their credit, they have been consistent about making clear that that's their goal, that the goal was no Jewish state in any border whatsoever between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. As long as their supreme goal is first and foremost that the Jews will not have their state in any part of the land, the problem is not whether they use BDS or whether they use demonstration or whether they use terrorism. The problem is that regardless of, what the, of the means that they try to pursue, they're pursuing a destructive goal, which as a result will not succeed because destructive goals just do not have the energy that we can see that a constructive goal like classic Zionism has. So uh, Minister Smotrich recently commented that there's no such thing as a Palestinian. Uh, there's no such thing as a Palestinian state. And, you know, what do you make of all this, right? He, you know, you guys come from very different political backgrounds, um, but as a student of history, and you know, what would you be putting forward as? I think you alluded to it a second ago as your 
path forward to solving ultimately the conflict. And, and by the way, those comments now, the source of just fury, you know, a big letter from the GCC countries, including those in the Abraham Accords, Jordan outrage. There was a map, obviously, which was a separate issue, which was its own outrage for Jordan and, and others. But but this core issue that Jared's talking about of, you know, whether there is such a thing as a Palestinian narrative and, and a Palestinian, et cetera, that, that caught so much controversy. Okay, so uh, quick background. Whenever any side in the conflict says that the other is not a people, they're not saying it as a historical argument. They're saying it because the next phrase after that, and because they're not a people, they do not partake in what has become acknowledged as the universal right of all peoples to self-determination. Because this is the essence of the way that our world is structured right now. Uh, the 20th century represented the transition from empires to states, and when lucky, self-determined nation states, uh, based on the principle of self-determination. This was the basis for Zionism's universal legitimacy. When Herzl says, we are a people, one people, he was exercising the notion of self-determination, we are a people, we are saying that we are a people, we are not going to accept the 19th century construct that Judaism is only a religion and therefore Jews should assimilate as French or German uh, citizens of the Mosaic faith. We're not only a religion, in fact, religion, uh, whether one will uh, be a mitzvot person or not is a personal choice, whether one wants to believe in the existence of a God is a personal choice. But the thing that defines us more than anything is that we are a people. And in the name of self-determination, Zionism claimed the universal right of Ukrainians and Poles and Czechs and Slovaks and French and Germans to have a state. And a state, a sovereign state to be ruled by our own, and where else? And the only geography that was ever connected with the Jews as a people rather than as individuals. Now, to claim that the Jews are not a people, which is a common refrain in the Arab world and especially among Palestinians, uh, this is why, for example, you will find someone like Abu Mazen uh, wishing members of the Jewish faith Happy Rosh Hashanah or something. And a lot of people think, oh, wow, that's really nice. You know, he's making an overture of peace. No, he's actually saying we have no problem to recognize Jews as members of a faith, but they are not a people. Uh, so when you say that the other is not a people is because you want to argue that they don't partake in the universal right to self-determination and therefore should not have a state. Um, so people on the extreme right wing in Israel, when they use that phrase, certainly publicly, they, they are not saying it as a matter of history. Uh, I mean, it's clear that the Palestinian people as a separate people from Arabs, I mean, Arab nationalism is an independent phenomenon. But the idea of a separate Palestinian nationalism is clearly deeply intertwined with the battle against Zionism. And it emerges as a more recent and distinct uh, identity much later. But by now, it is clearly the identity of a separate people that has been forged in this battle against Zionism, which is why I said the problem is not that the Palestinian are a people. By now they are. 
The problem is that the core ethos of their people is anti-Zionism. The core ethos is the pursuit of a destructive cause. So I end this by saying that no matter what each side says about the other, they seem to violently agree that they are not the other. And because those are two distinct collectives, I think ultimately the best thing that they could both do, which will only be possible once the Palestinians end their war against Zionism and change their core ethos away from anti-Zionism, the best thing that they can both do is govern themselves by themselves based on the principle of self-determination in two distinct political entities, which means that ultimately the land between the river and the sea will have to be divided. I want to unpack that a little bit, and I want to try to bring it to sort of current issues and the debate as we at least have it in Washington, and we at least see it from Washington and the rest of the United States. And that is in this construct of a two-state solution, right? This now three-decade or more idea coming out of Oslo and still to this day hangs over us and is sort of the basis for any discussion. You're for a two-state solution. You're against a two-state solution. How are we going to get a two-state solution done? What would be the modifications to a two-state solution if you couldn't really get it done in the classic way, et cetera? And then there's some who are rejectionists who say there's no such thing anymore. We have to move beyond it. There's no hope for a two-state solution. You see that you know, commonly on, on the right in, in Israel. You have this demilitarized state vision that even Netanyahu hangs on to, talks about. And from what I hear from what you're saying is, what are we even talking about? Why we're not we're not even there. We're so fundamentally not even in a place to talk about what a Palestinian state is, how we coexist, if the fundamentals of their ethos and their objectives haven't changed. How, how do you mix that all together? Because there are members of Congress, there there are senators, there are elected officials in Israel who all already are are ahead of where you are, right? You're sort of at the beginning, and we skipped ahead 30 years ago. Uh, how, how do we pull this back, or can we? In many ways, this is my project, is to make it clear that the problem is not the details of how Arabs and Jews, Israelis and Palestinians live in this piece of land. I mean, for many years, daily, I would get in my email box a new solution, a new recommendation to how it's going to work. And my argument has always been, those are the details that would be easily negotiated. And I repeat, easily negotiated once the fundamental conflict is resolved. And what is the fundamental conflict? The fundamental conflict is between Zionism and anti-Zionism, between the Jews saying, we have a legitimate right to self-determination in this piece of land. It doesn't have to be all of it, but it definitely has to be some of it. And the Arabs, now known as the Palestinians, saying, you have no such right. You are not a people. You are invaders from a foreign land. But regardless, you just don't partake in that right and definitely not in this land to which you have no connection. This is a conflict where you cannot split the difference. You can divide the land, you can divide the airspace, you can divide the resources. Those are details you can negotiate. What you cannot split is the difference between Zionism and anti-Zionism. One of these will have to give in order for the conflict to end. 
And in many ways, we've been engaged in a century-long battle of mutual exhaustion, where each side is trying to get the other to forgo their top priority. The Arab world, the Soviet Union, uh, now, you know, United Nations bodies, by now university campus organizations, have been all mobilized in the service of getting Jews to decide that they don't want Zionism. Uh, whether it's wars or terrorism or boycotts or international condemnations, the idea is to exhaust the Jews to the point of saying, you know what, not worth it. We're not fighting for this thing. We're out of here. And that's a vision that says that's what you do with invaders because Israel is the crusader state. Israel is like the French in Algeria. Israel is a European settler, white colonial implant. And therefore, the only proper way to address it is not with compromise, but with ejection. And the Jews are trying to get the Arab world, and especially the Palestinians, to accept us as legitimate, equal uh, claimants in this land, and therefore a people deserving of self-determination. This is the conflict that has to end. Now, you're asking about members of Congress or people in the West, one of the biggest problems we've had is that Western countries have been feeding Palestinian anti-Zionism wittingly, unwittingly, uh, through, for example, their support for organizations like UNRWA, which perpetuates the idea of the mythology of a right of return, which is basically a way to saying there will not be a Jewish state. So, at the same time of holding up the vision of two states, which again, I think is the worthwhile vision for two distinct people who should each govern themselves by themselves, they're feeding the Palestinian vision of Israel as a temporary presence whose days are numbered. And you see it now with the demonstrations. Much of the coverage in the Arab world is we are on the verge of retaking Palestine. This is, they're basically saying our moment is near. We have waited for a century, we battled, and now we're going to get it back. As long as they believe that that's a possibility, all the details of how we divide the land are irrelevant to the question of solving the fundamental conflict. So I have a lot of follow-ups on that, actually. There was, there was a lot there. But the first one is... Um, so does the Abraham Accords change this because the sort of central thesis that it is an us against them, the Arab world against the Jews, there, there's a crack in that. And, and you know, with, with respect to the former president who, you know, uh, a broken clock being right twice a day, got one right uh, on this. And what does this change that dynamic or does it not matter because if the Arab – uh, speaking outlets, even in countries where there are relations or trade relations with Israel, are still covering it like this, does it not matter? Oh, this is the greatest hope to come out of the region for a long time. Uh, there's absolutely no question about it. Because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if it ever was really just the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just the Jews and Arabs between the river and the sea, that conflict was over in April 1948. In April 1948, the Jews and the Arabs are basically pretty much settled in the lines. That conflict is over. It's a small conflict. It lasted several months. It was pretty much settled. 
In May 1948, it becomes the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the Arab world and ultimately the Soviet Union and the non-aligned movement are the fuel that feeds Palestinian intransigence for decades. The Palestinians, if they had been on their own, would not have been able to sustain decades of saying no. They would have had to come to terms with reality at one point. All this fuel that has been flowing in for decades uh, allowed them to avoid reality. So the question is, are we finally getting to the point where some of this fuel is being taken away? And the Abraham Accords represent uh, a refocusing of our priorities away from anti-Zionism, away from supporting Palestinian rejectionism. It's not really about us. Uh, I sometimes call the Abraham Accords a collateral benefit of a bigger shift in the Arab world. Uh, and certainly in the Gulf countries, much more towards focusing uh, on fighting extremism, developing a vision of a moderate Islam, serving their citizens. Um, and in that process, they find that anti-Zionism is no longer as useful to them as a scapegoat, as a way of redirecting anger as they once needed it. Uh, and because it's beginning to lose its value, they can basically begin to move away the fuel that sustains Palestinian intransigence. But it is only the beginning. It is completely a ray of hope. But one of the things that I find devastating about the current government is that as much as Netanyahu has, I think, the good and smart vision of a broader peace and normalization with the Arab world, and he correctly recognizes this opportunity, members of his coalition have been doing their utmost, unfortunately, quite successfully, to undo a lot of that. <laughs> okay. Rich. No, we, we, no we, see, we, we see that playing out, obviously, the reaction to many of Smotrich's comments um, from the Arab world. And I, I've always sort of wondered if it's because Al Jazeera is covering it in a certain way and and they, the, the leadership feels like this is moving the street. There's still an emotional connection to the Palestinians' cause to, to, the, to fellow Arabs. Um, even if they're they're trying to move that population towards normalization, they still have to deal with the basics of how people feel. Muslims among Muslims, Arabs to Arabs, there, there's still a bridge that is not fully crossed here with the population. Um, and so, and so, I think that these these danger points are real, and, and you're feeling them. I, I Rich, do Rich, I would just. Yeah, could I just interject? I, I want to come yeah. back. We we did interview Prime Minister Netanyahu in December, right before he took office. I asked him an unrelated question to the Palestinian cause, but it was a question relating to how his coalition partners were going to impact his ability to govern. Um, it was a question I asked him in the context of rights for the LGBTQ community. And he said, um, you know, in a very BB way, I'm the prime minister. I've been who I always was, and I will govern how, how I is, how I have always governed. And like Sababa, let's move on. Like that's that's a dumb question to ask me. And I think, Doctor Wolf, the, the the point you bring up is that that's actually not the what's playing out. That when you go into a coalition with further right people than he's ever been in a coalition with, like that actually matters. 
in terms of his ability to deliver on this, you know, zooming out wider piece uh, and, and moving moving the paradigm for the away from the Arab-Israeli conflict and narrowing it to okay, a conflict between Palestinians and Israelis, and leaving out the wider Arab world. Which I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was just no, I was no, struck I, by, by 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 what he said on that issue and how it's sort of like actually not what's yeah, coming I, to pass. Yes, I, I clearly in the last few days that 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 is that is uh, clear evidence at the moment. You know, unfortunately, you can't. Con- there's only so much anybody can do to control people's speeches when they go off the rail as ministers, etc. We've we've had. Well, you could fire them the as a defense minister. Well, yeah, you well, could fire them as a defense minister. I'm, I'm sorry, too I'm, soon, I'm, too soon. Well, there's a former defense minister now in the opposition who said even crazier things in the past about beheading Arab Israelis. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, never got fired for that one. Anyways, uh, the the, uh, the the question that I would have is uh, Jordan, though, strikes me as this exception to the rule at the moment where I see a great unhelpfulness to peace promotion, both Arab Israeli broadly and then clearly Palestinian Israeli. Where, you know, we talked once upon a time about this warm peace with Jordan versus the cold peace with Egypt. And you just kind of get the sense. I know John Sanzer, my colleague at FDD, has written about this. You've talked about this. You know, it's almost like the king believes that he's going to he's gonna collapse. The, the government will fall unless he is just all bought into to anti-Zionism in public while in private being a completely pro-Zionist because he knows the security relationship and the economics relationship is vital to the kingdom actually existing still. So um, can you talk about the Jordan dynamic and all of this and how you see that playing out? The Jordan dynamic is, uh, is clearly a very ambivalent one, one that has two elements to it. Uh, in many ways, Jordan has always been the country that was at the forefront of recognizing Zionism in Israel, going all the way back to Faisal. And even after the war of uh, 1948, Jordan was actually the only Arab country uh, from all the Arab countries that that were willing to make peace with Israel after the 1948 war. Uh, they They basically said, okay, we're annexing the West Bank. You take whatever territory you captured in the war. We're going to naturalize all the refugees because they're basically the same ethnicity. There are people. So whatever the Jews that fled uh, the West Bank, now it became the West Bank, uh, you've made them Israeli citizens. The Arabs that fled what became Israel, we're going to make them Jordanian citizens. And let's sign a peace deal and make these borders final. And then a Palestinian extremist assassinated King Abdallah precisely because it was clear that the Jordanians were willing to end the battle against Zionism. Uh, And ever since, the Jordanians have maintained this very ambivalent uh, position, one that generally recognizes the value of Israel to essentially the the success and the stability of the Hashemite uh, kingdom, which is really a minority kingdom over a Palestinian majority, uh, while feeling that to legitimize that rule, they have to engage in very public anti-Zionism. And the balance shifts depending on different events, 
But this has always been the high wire act of the Hashemite family. One of the things I remember most was how opposed uh, the Jordanian government was uh, to efforts to just get a basic count. Uh, you'll remember this debate back in, in, that we had in the Senate oh, 11 years ago now, uh, where we were just asking the State Department to give us a rough estimate of how many Palestinians who are considered refugees of UNRWA were actually alive in 1948, should, should meet the classic definition of being a refugee or, or even just, you know, their children. Uh, and I mean, the State Department went nuts over this request, right? Because we were going towards the delegitimization of the myth of an UNRWA refugee and a Palestinian refugee and, and some of these larger issues you talked about at the beginning. Um, and the one phone call I remember getting after the State Department was the ambassador of Jordan, who was just like, uh, apoplectic, you're going to bring down the kingdom, you can't do this. I'm like, I'm asking on behalf of U.S. taxpayers just for a count, just for a census. Well, I mean, well, I'm not even defunding anything at this point. Um, and so uh, it's a good but transition. To fair, but Rich, yeah. to be fair, that's where you were going, right? I mean, well, I mean, the, the details obviously would be, you know, if you're a Jordanian citizen, <laughs> I think we should be funding Jordan, not, not UNRWA. If you're right. living in the West Bank, we should be thinking about a Palestinian state, not, not UNRWA. But, but my question would be, you've done so much work on UNRWA. You've written the book on UNRWA, quite literally. Um, this is a good segue from Jordan into UNRWA. Where do you see the state of play of UNRWA today? Uh, the Biden administration has obviously gone from zero to a billion, quite literally, in dollars uh, over the last two years, uh, where the Trump administration had defunded UNRWA. We didn't get any changes fundamentally. They hung on until a new president. They've now gotten close to a billion dollars over two calendar years. Um, they're still there. Where, where, where do you see UNRWA today in, in this debate um, within the, this core construct that you, you drew for us of the Zionism versus anti-Zionism and where should it go? UNRWA is the core of the anti-Zionist Palestinian identity. Uh, one of the things that we realized that D. Schwartz and myself, my co-writer myself in, in the book, The War of Return, one of the things that shocked us in the process of the research is to realize the crucial role of UNRWA in creating not just a separate Palestinian national identity, but in creating a Palestinian national identity that was centered around the issue of return and revenge. Uh, because that's really when you can begin to see a separate Palestinian identity uh, forged. Uh, it's not just the battle against Zionism. It's, of course, the Arab rejection of accepting the, pal the Arab refugees, uh, at the time still not called Palestinians. As I said, the Jordanians that were willing to naturalize the Arab refugees um, almost saw the fall of the kingdom as a result, and this is why they're still apoplectic on anything that touches this issue. Uh, but the, the connection between nationalism and schools is 101, right? That's nationalism 101. And in the UNRWA schools and in the UNRWA refugee camps, a separate Palestinian national identity was forged, separate from the surrounding Arab countries. And again, that in itself is not a problem. Most of the world's national identities are fairly recent. 
But the problem is that the foundational ethos became one of return and revenge. And this remains the foundational ethos, not just of the Palestinian people, but the one that is taught at UNRWA schools. And Western nations that fund UNRWA to billions of dollars are essentially fueling the conflict. They are playing the role that Arab countries, that the Soviet Union has played for so many decades of fueling Palestinian rejectionism and the dream of Israeli temporariness, uh, if I can say that. And, and it gets me very angry because, again, I know Joe Biden loves Israel. And uh, he has, a, I mean, he really loves Israel. Um, but from the American administration, and I asked many people, they just think of it as cheap money to buy quiet. But this has always been the view. This was protection money. This was bribe. Let's just give this money to buy another year of quiet. But it, but it actually doesn't buy quiet. I mean, I can even debate whether it buys quiet in the short term. But it definitely does not buy quiet in the long term because it feeds another generation of Palestinians who believe it is their most noble duty to rid the land of Zionism and of the Jewish state. And ultimately, the people who pay for that are not uh, Americans or Australians or French. The people who pay for that are Israelis in blood and life. And that's why it drives me up the wall. It makes me very angry because at this point, really, I spent with the Dishwarts effort to write a book. They can't say that they don't know what they're funding and they're still funding it. Well, one quick follow-up before we get to our lightning round, just because that, that census I talked about 11 years ago, we finally kind of got it. The State Department refused to release it after many, many years because they, they classified it uh, as if a, a basic number would be classified information. Uh, that, that's how politically uh, protective the State Department bureaucracy is, regardless of, of administration. But on his way out of office, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former guest on the podcast, tweeted this in January 2021. UNRWA is not a refugee agency. It's estimated less than 200,000 Arabs displaced in 1948 are still alive, and most others are not refugees by any rational criteria. Taxpayers deserve basic truth. Most Palestinians under UNRWA's jurisdiction aren't refugees, and UNRWA is a hurdle to peace. American support peace and Palestinian human rights. UNRWA supports neither. It's time to end UNRWA's mandate, end quote. My question is to you, so we got this number hanging out here. I you know, I always thought it would be a little bit less than that based on people I talked to. Some people thought it would be a little bit more. Secretary Pompeo publicly says that the State Department estimates fewer than 200,000 people are refugees by any rational criteria in UNRWA. You don't hear about that anymore. Two years later, we have this number hanging out there. Is there something that somebody should do with that number? Is there is there something to do now that we have this public number from a Secretary of State? The thing is this. The Palestinian so-called refugee issue in practice is a very small problem. Everyone who lives in Jordan is a naturalized citizen. Even those who were actual refugees who fled war, they're by now naturalized citizens. So even if they fled war, they're not refugees anymore. They're naturalized Jordanian citizens. They're not refugees. That's over 2 million people. 
Anyone who lives in the West Bank and Gaza, again, even if they're the original ones, they're not refugees. They live in the West Bank and Gaza by their claim, it's Palestine. So they're not refugees. We know that those who were counted in Syria and Lebanon, about a million, we know most of them have left from recent census. So yes, you can argue that between 200,000, 300,000 of the original refugees and their stateless descendants need some form of solution. Uh, they need to either be naturalized in Syria or Lebanon or in another country. But those are the numbers. That's it. It's about 5% of those that UNRWA claims. Um, those are the ones that need some sort of naturalization solution. It's a very small problem. Uh, those are the numbers that the actual agency for refugees, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, knows how to deal with. It knows how to take care of those numbers in a five to 10 year time frame. So the actual number, the actual problem is not a problem. The refugee issue is an ethos. To be a Palestinian is to be a perpetual refugee awaiting triumphant return when the Jewish state is gone and erased. That's what it means to be the Palestinian ethos, which is why the number is not the issue. Anyone looking into it knows that the actual problem is small. The biggest mistake we made 30 years ago in the negotiations in Camp David and before is that we looked at the actual problem. We proposed solutions to the actual problem, resettlement, compensation, now realizing that it was never about the real problem. It was always about the ethos, about the idea that a Jewish state is illegitimate and the idea of return and perpetual refugeehood is merely the mechanism by which the Jewish state should be undone. Dr. Wolf, before we let you go, we like to do something called the lightning round here, where we ask you a series of questions to just get a little bit more of a flavor uh, uh, about who you are as a person. So I'm going to go first, uh, and then Rich, feel free to, to jump in. But first one, uh, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And if you want to say something that's uh, a four-letter word, you can, as long as it's in <laughs> a language other than English. Oh, the usual putz, schlep. They're just great. <laughs> right there you go i i, I never call Those richard Potts that, ever that's, that's very that, that's very matter of fact i like that yeah, uh, yeah do you have a favorite jewish food jewish food matzah with uh butter matzah really? with butter very timely yeah, yeah very you. timely yes all right do you have uh now answer a question for us that the prime minister refused to answer when we had him on do you have a favorite israeli wine uh yeah it's called uh de Gat. they're very good where is that from? That sounds really uh, good. The Judean just... Hills uh, near a little kibbutz called Har'el. All right. We're going to look into that one. Dr. Renat Wilf, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Wow, Rich. Uh, you know how sometimes we have a guest on and you feel like you've taken a class in calculus because it stretches your brain to think in directions that it it. It doesn't typically go. Uh, I, I tell you, that's what I'm feeling right now after talking to Dr. Wolf. Yeah, it challenges the, your way of thinking. It, it gives you a new strategic paradigm for the conversation, the conversation about the judicial reform and the protests and what we're seeing, the compromise, hopefully, and at the same time, the conflict with the Palestinians and the rise in violence and talk of a third intifada. 
I mean, a lot of perspective here and a lot for people, I think, on all sides to, to sit down, listen to this a couple times uh, and update your views. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.